minutes of halacha, and then from there we'll uh, we'll see if we have some time as at the end to do a little bit of parsha. But as far as the halacha is concerned, so uh, as per our usual, we'll uh, mention um, a few recent shilas that uh, that came up, and you'll tell me which one uh, you want to talk about. So uh, here are a few of the shilas. Um, I got a. I, I was in Eretz a couple of weeks ago, and I ran into one of my talmidim, who my, my current talmidim in uh, in YU, and he happened to have been in Eretz the same week as me. And um, then the morning I got back, I got the following text from him. He writes, "Hi, Rebbe. I accidentally left my laptop in Israel, and it looks it looks like the earliest I can get it back would be Monday, most likely Tuesday. This was on Friday morning. It's definitely an annoying time to be without a computer because I have some finals and projects due this week. I had an idea, but I'm not sure if it's unethical. I know that many stores have a one or two week return policy." So I was thinking of buying a laptop and returning it once I get mine back. Is it unethical to buy something with the sole intention of returning it? Or do we say that's their policy, so it's fine? Thank you, Rebbe. So that's Shaila number one. Can you uh, you know buy something with the sole intention of returning it? Another Shaila I got last week. Um, uh, so it starts with, Happy Hanukkah, Rabbi. Uh, perhaps my Shaila is somewhat Hanukkah related because it involves games of chance. I am a financial analyst, and about two years ago, I was asked to analyze casino companies. So far, I have coasted on numbers, spreadsheets, and earnings calls. But one of my portfolio managers has been telling me for a while that the best way to understand the business is to actually go to some casinos to get a sense of how they differ. Recently, he suggested I go to an investor conference in Vegas taking place the week after Purim. Personally, I must admit that I'm interested in going to the conference. I don't gamble, and I wouldn't want to pour money down the drain, especially as I see how much casinos profit from it. However, I would be interested in attending and gambling a small amount if it were halachically permissible, to understand the experience a little bit better. So my question is, can I or can't I do it? Are there certain things that I can do? Poker, slots, is there marasain considerations? Is it gazelle? Is it, would it make me puzzle edus? Thank you so much. So that is Shaila number two. Do you want to, we'll do a third one? We'll do a third one, right? The third choice never hurt anyone. Um, so I was talking to a rabbinic uh, colleague of mine, and he has a forum where Shilas can be submitted anonymously. So one Shaila recently came in from a woman uh, anonymously, a woman who has been trouble, tr- having trouble conceiving a child. And on day three of her seven clean days of her Shivanikim, she did an ovulation test and she, she saw that she was ovulating. In a moment of weakness, she and her husband were intimate. She now feels terribly guilty and wants to know how to do tshuva for this Avera. Additionally, she's concerned that if it worked and she is in fact pregnant, the child is going to be flawed in some way. So how should the rabbi advise her uh, to proceed? How does one respond to such an email? So again, Shaila number one, uh, buying a computer just so that you could have one for a few days and then returning it, taking advantage of a generous return policy. Shaila number two, going gambling for research uh, uh, as a... As as a, uh, as a financial analyst. And Shiloh number three, tshuva for conceiving when one is a nida. So let's vote in the chat. Ooh, looks like one is winning by a landslide. Okay, so uh, we'll give it another minute if anyone else wants to vote. Um, 
Yeah, so it looks like it's going to be Shaila 1. Okay, so let's talk about Shaila number 1. I'm always surprised by what people want to talk about. I guess this is very relevant because it's also relevant before the Super Bowl. Um, they say in Costco that uh, on Sunday morning of the Super Bowl, um, people go and they buy uh, and they buy televisions. And then on Monday morning, they go and return televisions. So they get uh, very nice big screen TVs for, uh, for to watch the Super Bowl. So what, what are the ethics and the halach, uh, halachic uh, issues uh, at play over here? So it happens to me, I, I, uh, I, I, when I was researching on the internet about uh, you know uh, what, what there is out there on this topic, I came across an, uh, a, uh, a tshuva or you know, uh, an essay from Rav Daniel Mann from, uh, from, from Eretz Chemda, and also from our Kolel in Eretz Yisrael, from the Gritz Kolel uh, in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and uh, he was asked the following. He was asked, similar, um, he was asked, the, I am an amateur seamstress, someone writes to him. Like, I liked a dress I saw in a store, but it was too expensive. I wanted to buy it, learn its cuts, and then return it. And this was a question that was asked in Israel. And he said, which Israeli law permits within 48 hours of the purchase. Meaning, over there, it's not a store policy. It's a commerce policy in the country that every store has to accept returns within 48 hours. May I buy the dress with the intention to return it? Um, in, in any case, I'm not going to otherwise buy the dress. If I can't do this, it's, I simply can't afford it. The, the question is, uh, can I buy it just so that I could analyze it carefully and then uh, and then return it afterwards? So that uh, is the shaila that he deals with, which is a very similar shaila. A few minor nuances of difference, but really a very, very similar shaila to what we have. So let's start with like what the basic halacha would be, meaning without special government provisions, without any written um, explicit return policies or anything like that, what would the halacha be when you buy something? Are you allowed to return something that you buy? You know, a lot of times people have an assumption of the way things ought to work or the way things ought to be just based on our normal sense of, uh, of right and wrong, but that's not always the case, meaning it's not always... It's not a, very often what we uh, normally think of as the right thing to do is not uh, is not at all what the halacha says. Meaning, uh, I just had an example last night. Someone called me, told me that uh, his uh, that a woman was babysitting a child. She was watching. She she babysits this child a lot. It's a child from another family, um, and she babysits the child. She takes care of the child uh, while babysitting the child. The child went up to their uh, uh, flat screen TV. And started scratching it with her uh, with her fingers, and now every time they turn on the TV, there are these blotches all over the screen. Essentially, the child had ruined what is uh, you know a TV that costs several thousands of dollars. So uh, the guy said, you know, it's ten years old this TV. So when we bought it, it was eight thousand dollars or something like that. I don't know what it's worth now, but but to buy a new one, we want this one back. So it costs eight. So does she have to pay us eight thousand dollars, or does she only have to pay us what it's worth now? And the, the real answer is. Is, she has to pay you nothing, meaning the parents have to pay you nothing. Person's not chayiv for the damage that your child did. You're chayiv for the damage that your shor does, but not the damage that your child does. And not only that, even if it, if the child wasn't a child and was a shor, you also wouldn't have to pay um, the uh, because the shomer, the person who was responsible for the child at the time, was the woman on the television. So, meaning a lot of times what people think is right and wrong is not necessarily how the halacha plays out. So the halacha is. Once a person makes a kinyan on a 
uh, on any item that's uh, that's being sold to them, you're not allowed to back out of the deal unless you have three uh, um, uh, exceptions. It, it was there was some sort of mum in the uh, object and significant enough that it would uh, you could claim mekachtos. Shulchan Aruch discusses in Chosh Mishpatim and Reish Lamed Beis that and and Shulchan Aruch says there's another thing that people assume uh, incorrectly. People assume yeah if there's a mum but like within a reasonable amount of time you know at a certain amount of time uh, the you know when time passes uh, you got to assume that it's time to move on and therefore yeah, you're not allowed to return it. No in halacha we don't have that even if it's years later you can cancel the sale and ask for a refund on the condition that you didn't use the item once the defect was discovered. If you use the item once you discover the defect, then it's as if you were already mochel on that uh, on that mum and you're not eligible for a refund anymore. But if you didn't use it, even years later, you can uh, you can uh, go back. I just had the Shaila this week. Someone had uh, bought a sukkah and they accidentally delivered him two sukkahs. And he, uh, he he contacted the sukkah company. So before sukkahs, they were they were so crazy busy, they didn't have time to pay attention to it. And after sukkahs, they pretty much close up shop. So they've been you know pretty much ignoring his emails. So uh, he wanted to know. So now I'm the owner of the sukkah, right? Uh, not really. Um, it, it doesn't work like that. Even if a lot of time goes by, uh, they made a mistake. It, uh, you don't necessarily become the owner until they're explicitly mochel. Or until you've been storing it for so long that the storage fees, uh, you know, uh, outweigh the uh, the price of the sukkah. So a lot of times people assume that time just automatically uh, means that that transactions uh, change. Not true. It's not, a, not. It's often not true. So over here also. So again, one exception to the rule is. Um, that if there's a mum in the object. Another exception to the rule is ona'a, if it was very overpriced. So if you have something that was very overpriced, so there's bitul mekach, if it's overpriced by more than one-sixth of the uh, price. And the third exception to the rule is if someone made a tenai, uh, that the tenai in the sale was that you'll always be allowed to return it. So uh, and 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 that fitting in that category of tonight is store policy, and that's why store policy trumps everything. Um, and you know, just like with most monetary issues, if there's an official policy that a buyer agreed to in buying the item, let's say there's a sign that says that with no, absolutely no returns, then it's absolutely no returns. Um, and if there's a sign that says, or uh, the the policy is that we allow returns, no questions asked, then they allow returns, no questions asked. So as far as the ability to return when there is a store policy or when there is a law of the land, like in the case of Israel, um, so l'chora on a strict choshen mishpat basis, um, as far as, uh, you know, whether it's stealing or not, on a strict choshen mishpat basis, you are allowed to return things, even if there's no defect, even if there was no overpriced. Uh, but that's not really the question over here. The question is not, I have this item, I changed my mind, I want to return it. You know, that's not the question. That, that okay, you'd be allowed to do, there's no question about that. The question over here is, I, I don't have the item. I want to go get the item with the sole intention of returning it later. That's a different, uh, a different question. And even you know, you have to you, you have to realize that the uh, the assumption that you're always allowed to return things because there's a law or a policy, um, that law was not based, was not made to help buyers in uh, in these kinds of cases. Um, you know, and and certainly even if it was permissible, one has to question whether it's morally okay. 
say or or not. So uh, the, you know, Rabbi Man just pointed out that even looking through, he said, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but he said just looking through the Takanos Haganas Hatsarchan, uh, which is what these laws are called in Israel, it, there are limitations to it. Um, for example, the consumer can return the item only if he hasn't used it. Um, you know, uh, so whether handling a, a dress or a, using a computer for a day or two is considered using it is a good question, but it may very well be considered uh, using it. Lechora, uh, it is considered using it. Um, a use is a use, even if it's not the standard use of the item. Like wearing a dress is a standard use of an item. Uh, but uh, the Gemara Mbamitsiya tells us that you're not even allowed to display a beautiful fabric in your house if you uh, if if it's not yours. So uh, so that's a non-standard uh, use of of the item. So uh, so that would be uh, even against the the letter of the law that they have. And in addition to that, in the law in Israel, uh, the law is that the seller can demand as a charge for returning uh, either five percent of the sales price or a hundred shekel. So uh, we'll get back to that one because that might be an important uh, fact. Now, what are the issues over here? What are the potential isurim? So it seems to me that there are four potential issues, four potential isurim in uh, in going in and buying something, knowing full well that you don't want to keep it. So first is onaas devarim. The Gemara Mesechs Bametzia Daf Nun Chesam says that a person is not allowed to go and ask a uh, a merchant, a storekeeper, for the price of an item if they have no intention of buying that item. So w- w- what is that based on? Why is there such an iser? And this is quoted in Shulchan Aruch in Simen Chav Ches, in Chosh Mishpat, Siv Dalid, and it's based on a Mishnah, Gemara Bametzia Daf Nun Ches. So the Meiri gives two reasons. Number one, he says, other potential customers who see your decision to inquire and then not buy it might conclude that the item is overpriced. And that's why uh, they'll assume that's why you're not buying it. And therefore, it's going to cause damage to the seller. Uh, It's not really overpriced. You just had no interest in buying it. So it didn't matter what price they would tell you. Um, You know, like when people go buy a diamond ring or something. So what do they do most often? Every Jew has a cousin and uncle or this or that, a neighbor in the diamond business. So uh, they're, they're of course, going to buy only from their neighbor. But they go to a jewelry store and, you know, with the kala in order to see what kind of cut she likes, what kind of setting she likes. So they're going through this whole process. It's not so postured at all, at all, that it's mutter to do that. Um, people are going to see that you're going, so Miri gives one explanation, people are going to see that you're, 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 uh, you're inquiring about it, and then that you're choosing not to buy it. The other time uh, uh, the Miri has, or explanation the Miri has, is that by refraining from buying it, um, after appearing to be interested, it just, and this is the Pashup shot, it just causes the guy selling it to feel dejected, right? And for that reason, it's uh, it's us Dvarim. Um, but there may be other reasons also. Uh, for example, um, you're, 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 you're taking up the person's time, you're taking up the person's 
energy, you know, um, the, the, you know, any any negotiation with uh, with a proprietor can uh, can can lead to uh, someone being disappointed. But normally, that's just part of doing business because you know there's a chance that the person will buy it, so it's worth my efforts as a seller, as a storekeeper, to go through the the the, the trouble of stocking it and of uh, and and of discussing with you and of you know and 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 showing you its features, even though it might not come through. But uh, when when there's nothing to gain on the store side, then l'chora to engage the store, uh, you know, when they know that they have zero to gain, is going to be problematic. That would at least be a violation of onas tevarim. You, you might be occupying the salesperson. Uh, you might, uh, it, while you have the item, it means no one else can buy it at that time. Um, you don't know how, how many they have in stock and whether uh, they're gonna someone else can get delivery a day late on it and then leave a bad review on the uh, on the company because uh, because they were they were low on stock around the holiday season when people were buying new computers. Um, you know, you don't know to what extent that the fact that you had it for a few days means that it's now no longer new and can no longer be sold as new and is going to be uh, a loss to them. So all of these things, for all of these reasons, l'chora, it would be a violation of Anas Dvarim. In addition to that, l'chora, it's a violation of Genevas Das. Um, the Rambam in the second paragraph of Ilchus Deus talks about how a Jew must conduct himself, and he says that a Jew has to exude sincerity. We cannot give off a certain oppression when we speak to others and maintain entirely contrary thoughts in our minds. We always have to say the truth, and uh, the Gemara Psachim Daf Kofiud Gimel uses a very strong language language when it des- describes um, uh, Hashem's attitude toward people who are insincere in the way they express themselves. The Gemara says that there are three, group, three groups of people that Hashem hates, that are Kodesh son on, and one of them is someone who's echad bepeh ve'echad belev. So you might think it's a, it's, it's, it's a harmless uh, act, but you're giving the impression that you're interested in buying something, and you're not really interested in buying something, uh, and that is a violation of Gnevis Das. In certain ways, Chazal considered Gnevis Das to be more strict then Genevas Mamon, the Ritvan Chulund of Tzadi Dalid, uh, quotes a passage from the Tosefta in Babakama that three types of Ganavim, the most severe of all of them, is a Gonev Das. The Gemara says explicitly that Genevas Das is Afilu Das Akum, that uh, even for a non Jew, you're not allowed to be Gonev, gonev Das. Why is Genevas Das so bad? Why is it so much worse, according to that Tosefta, than uh, than even real Geneva? So uh, one possibility is that um, the Minchas Chinuch writes in Mitzvah Reish Chav Dalid when he describes the difference between a Ganav and a Gazlan. The Minchas Chinuch writes a Ganav is someone who steals uh, very discreetly, and a Gazlan steals openly. So Minchas Chinuch writes that even if we were to assume that Gzela from a non-Jew is only Asumidrabanan. Geneva from a non-Jew would still be Asumidar Raisa. And the distinction between the two it lies in understanding the difference between different categories of mitzvahs. We, of course, have mitzvahs that are ben adam l'chaveiro, we have mitzvahs ben adam l'makom, but the Gra, in his commentary on the second parak of Mishlei, says that there's a third category called ben adam la'atzma, which is basically character development, that we have an obligation to be good people, um, even if it's in a way that doesn't directly benefit God or directly benefit other people, 
but just enriching our own personalities. So when a person steals openly, it's an isurbet al lechaveiro, taking money that doesn't belong to him. When he steals discreetly, it also reflects a tremendous lack of Yerushamayim by showing that he, he's more fearful of other people than he is of the Ribbono Shalom. That's not only been on the Chavir, that's been Adam La'atzmo. So one might say that when it comes to mitzvahs ben on the chaveiro, they don't apply to a nachri on a daraisa level. Certainly, it's also to steal from a nachri, no matter what, right? Uh, you know, but the question is whether it's nisud daraisa or nisud rabbanan. But when it comes to an, uh, to to a ben adam la'atzmo, uh, even if the other party is a nachri, the real other party is yourself, and that would still be a nisud daraisa. And that's why the minchas chinuch writes one could vi- might violate geneva when stealing even less than a Shavapruta, whereas violating Gazela is only when stealing something of value. So Gnevistas also may be worse than actually stealing because of the increased violation of Ben Latzmo when one is engaged in Gnevistas. So it could be that's what makes it so bad, that it's, a, it's training oneself to be a deceitful, deceitful person. Then there is a third potential Isra, and that is, forget about Anas Dvarim, forget about Gnevistas, you're not allowed to steal. Uh, why is this stealing? Um, because even when you return something to a store, even if it's in perfect condition, the store has to pay to restock it, and it's often possible. Uh, it's often not possible to sell it as a brand new item. So you have you, 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 the store has an actual financial loss by you using the item, and that might be nezek. Uh, maybe we won't call it gezel. We'll call it nezek. That uh, you're damaging an item when there's no benefit to the store in uh, in 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 uh, you having that that item. And a fourth issue is actual stealing. Um, why would it be actual stealing? Because in general, when you make a transaction, um, there's an an assumed uh, meeting of the minds. Meaning, if you just plan on having something for a short while before you return it and you have no real intention of actually buying the item, in your mind, you're borrowing it. As far as the store is concerned, they're selling it to you. They're not loaning it to you. And that really raises the issue of not only Onaz Tavarim, not only Nezek, but actual stealing. Because the halach is, if you borrow something without the owner knowing, right, if you're Shol Shalomidas, you borrow something and the person doesn't know that you are borrowing it, so that that's a form of stealing. So in this case, it's an unusual example of it, because the person knows that you're taking it out of the store, but they think you're taking it out of the store as a purchase, not as a not as a loan. So one might argue that it's an act of stealing itself. So you have Onas Tavarim, you have uh, Gnevastas, you have Nezek, and you have stealing. So what's the Svara to be Matir? Is there any Svara to be Matir? So there are two Svaras to be Matir. In the case that uh, Rav Man was talking about in Eretz Yisrael, where they charge a return fee, um, then it could be that uh, there's, there's, that that's a compensation for whatever concerns there might be. Um, and that might make it uh, mutter. Um, it won't necessarily solve the problem that you're not allowed to return it after using it, and this may be called using it, but, uh, but it would say it won't necessarily solve the problem of Geneva's das, but the return fee may solve the problem of the Geneva itself, of the actual, uh, or the Nezek, let's say, because the return fee is supposed to compensate them for that. But, but that Lechora doesn't really solve all of our problems. The, the, the bigger Kula that one could suggest 
is that there are many stores, particularly very large chain stores um, or uh, you know online sellers like Amazon and the like, where based on their own market research, they come to the conclusion that it pays for them to let you buy an item even if your intention is to return it in a few days. It's part of their model. It's similar to the gift card uh, model. Uh, When companies discovered that they can sell gift cards, it was a boon for uh, for many, many stores. Because I think uh, the statistics are like something like uh, 60% of the money on gift cards ever actually gets used. So it's like actual free money for all the, you know, a, a restaurant sells a gift card for $300 and you go out to dinner for dinner and it only costs $200. Those last $100 are likely never going to be uh, used and, uh, and the restaurant just made $100 free dollars. Right? So there's a lot of things that companies do that they just, uh, they, they know the way it works and they know how it, how it plays out. So one of the things that they know how it works is that a lot of people, if you have a generous return policy, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm going to take advantage of that return policy. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to, you know, just borrow, you know, use something for a few days and give it right back. But there's something that people are even more prone to do than to try to get a good deal. And that is to be lazy. Uh, people are extremely lazy about actually following through on uh, on these things. And uh, as a result, the, the company knows that. And that's why they have such uh, such generous, generous policies. Because they figure there are many people who will either change their minds and decide to keep the item or just forget to return it. It will be sitting in a corner somewhere. So th- if, if that's the case, that the, some of these stores have a policy that allows you to try to outsmart them by buying something with the intention to return it, knowing full well that the joke's on on, on you, that very often the joke is on the uh, the customer and he's not going to remember to return it. So it could be that it's not. they're fully aware. They Dafka set up a system in order to make it this way, in order to make it uh, play out this way. So that is a svara, a potential uh, potential svara uh, to be uh, to be mekil. Uh, one has to question that though, because. Um, it's unlikely that that is the sole uh, reason or even the primary reason for a generous return policy. Um, for example, and one has to be mindful of the fact that uh, taking advantage of generous return policies can have very negative consequences. Um, a friend of mine told me he was uh, in Walmart upstate during the summertime and they actually changed their return policies for the months of uh, May to August. Because what they found is that uh, in upstate New York, a lot of uh, you know Jewish people would come to spend the summer, and they would buy whatever they would need for the summer at Walmart in uh, the end of May or in June at some point, and then in August they would return it, and uh, they were just losing so much money, um, and it was not, let's just say it's not a kiddush Hashem that the WalMarts upstate have to change their return policies in order to uh, address the behavior of uh, the from consumers. So it's, you know, in general, one has to take a step back and ask themselves, is this really uh, a good faith practice? Is this really something that, it, that uh, you know, that, that someone who, uh, who's trying to, uh, to be an Orla Goyim and someone who's trying to, uh, to live their life, uh, you know, that, that reflects a proper Tzalem Elokim, is this something that one should be doing? And uh, it doesn't pass the smell test. So the guy waited a couple of days. He got his computer back on Monday morning, and, and he was fine. And nothing happened. He didn't, uh, he didn't suffer too badly from, uh, from waiting. Okay, so um, any questions before we move on to Parsha?
Let's move on to Parsha. Okay. Yes. Well, just a, a couple of things. Number one, it's the unused gift cards. If the unused gift cards have an expiration date, by the way, is illegal in California. It doesn't stay with the retailer. It just treats to the state. The state gets the proceeds. Really? Unused gift card. Yes. That's the law in most places. That's, what does that mean? It goes to the state. How does that? How, it gets it. Uh, it it's a, the long story. There's something called Disney Dollars, where it's a great store for Disney. Disney it was great for Disney because you buy it, and most people don't cash it in. And the state uh, moved sued Disney to get all the money back, and they lost because the holding was they never expire. But if they expire, then most states say it go, they, the state gets the benefit of it. Wow. And that's just the law. Wow. Yeah, so that's on the gift cards. But second, very quickly, is this has also came up, and I asked the Shiloh, we'll get into the answer, with bank accounts. If you open a bank account for a certain amount of time, you get like a, a bonus. And there, a lot of the considerations we're talking about don't exist. It's not a mer- it's not a product. Right. And the fact is, like, I've opened it out of a room at night, and I, 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 it ends up, I like the the bank, so I stayed with them. But So it's clearly a business. Right. And that's uh, that's so, clearly what they're trying to do. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't my intent. to. My intent was to close it. The, right. I, the, the answer I got was it was okay because it's a business decision that they've made, and in fact, I might keep it open, and indeed, that's what happened. Yeah. I wonder if that changes your your. I, it doesn't change my opinion about this, but bank account meaning you have to look at each uh, each industry and each you know over here it's a product that you're actually using and yeah. is now no longer a new product. Uh, I think that's my a bank account is exactly what they're looking to do. Meaning what you just described is exactly what they're looking to do. My grandmother is a, a, a Shalom had like a closet full of like toasters and you know things. Right, right. <laughs> Remember, there, we... was, uh, yeah. there, there used to be a um, when when you could actually order food in coach on air, on airlines, but you had to order kosher food twenty four hours in advance. But uh, you could get uh, I think it was back in the days of Pan Am. You you could get a ninety nine dollar ticket across the country, um, but it, it was, I think it was standby, or you had, to, you had to buy it within 24 hours. So there were these guys from Yeshiva that they were sent. What they would do is they'd make a, a reservation, a real reservation, order the kosher food, cancel the reservation, and then, and then there would happen to be kosher food on board um, because uh, because they had uh, um, had pre-ordered it as a full price ticket. Uh, so that was a that, that was something that I remember they had shilas about uh, yeah. whether they could. Also. Yeah, we have all sorts of chachmas. Okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah. The tshuva that he Moshe about the uh, whether you know where he talks about the um, uh, if kol aminik medina so kol if it's the if it's the uh, the law of the uh, of of the land that that therefore you even if it goes against what you're uh, against the what the Torah would assume the. the the uh, Kenyanim and the um, and the contracts are are like if it, if that's what the das of both parties are uh, going in, then that's what's implied in the contract. If that that's the das of the another, so if it's right. if that's the law, right? Like, like you were talking about in Israel, but there's a lot of obviously you had very 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 good uh, other considerations besides that um, that uh, that would point against it. So, yeah. I, 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 Okay. Um, all right, a little uh, Dvartar on the Parsha. 
Um, so after 22 years of not speaking with his brothers, Yosef finally reveals his identity and has a conversation with them. So he imparts, you would imagine, some sort of very important message right after talking to them. So you would think he'd give a musr or he would, uh, you know, uh, taunt them that, look at me, I became everything I said I was going to become, or, you know, maybe ignore everything that uh, they had done and focus on just building bridges and love and everything else. Uh, but after encouraging them and telling them how this was all Hashem's plan, and he gave them a, a very specific message to be delivered to Yaakov, and he formulated a plan for their for their future. But then he adds three words that are somewhat strange. He says, "Al tirgazu don't become agitated on the road." Now you know they say in yeshivas that "Al tirgazu baderach" is like. Don't uh, don't get all upset about everyone's derech halimut. You know, everyone gets all upset about the. You know, I have the right derech halimut, but you know uh, that's not what it means, obviously. So I'll tear So I, you know that seems like a little bit of a strange bit of advice. You know, of course he told them to drive safely because he's Jewish. But w- why would the Torah report that part of uh, you know the, this part of the conversation of you know make sure you're careful when you drive? So the Gemara explains in Tainus Daviud, Amr of Lazar, Amr of Yosef Alachiv, Al tis asku bidvar halacha. That he was either telling them to avoid talking and learning or to take small steps as they walked. Again, travel advice. You know, what, what, why would he give them travel advice? They made it down there. Why is he so concerned about how they're going to travel back? You know, whatever the Allah's of traveling are, I'm sure Yaakov taught them before they went down to Mitzrayim in the first place. And also, another question the Medrash reveals a hidden message in the Torah's description of the pit that Yosef was thrown into. Vaborek says the Medrash, Nisrokon Boroshal Yaakov. Ain bo mayim, ain bo divrei Torah shenimshalu lemayim. Ksiv ki matzai ish goniv nefesh meachiv umachruva atem achartem esachichem. Medrash seems to be saying Yaakov was lacking in Torah, and that's why his children forgot the halacha that kidnapping is aser. That's a very strange thing to say that, that they didn't know the halacha that kidnapping is aser. Really, nisroka barush al Yaakov ain bo mayim ain bo divrei Torah that Yaakov didn't have divrei Torah, and they forgot that uh, that you're not allowed to be goniv. Nefesh me'achav, that you're not allowed to kidnap somebody? Very difficult to understand. Did the brothers really need Yaakov's scholarship to teach them that it's wrong to kidnap? It's a very, very difficult medrash. So there is a yesod, I believe from the Be'er Yosef, where he explains very beautifully that everything the Shvatim did was with the intention of promoting what they believed to be justice, what they believed to be correct. You know, there are countless Midrashim to that effect. Rashi remarks in the name uh, that the name of the town Dosan indicates Levakesh Lecha Nichle Dosos Lamischabem to use laws to sentence him to death, that there would be actual laws, Dosos. Second, the Medrash records that they suggested throwing him to, a ra- to rabid dogs. Why rabid dogs? Based on the Gemara Psach and Dav Kof that somebody who speaks Dosan Hara is Ra'uila Shlicha Luklavim. So there was a Midakanag Mida, there was a there was a basis for it. There was a logic to it. The Medrash says Yehuda's suggestion to sell Yosef as a slave was based on Nelech v'nitfos darko shalolam kena'an shachata lola evin neskalel avzeh l'chu v'nimkarnu li'ishma'elim that they said that there's precedent for this, that kena'an uh, sinned and was uh, therefore cursed as an evid. So this boy sinned, this Yosef sinned, and therefore we're going to uh, make him an evid. Everything was based Based on law, everything was based on precedent, everything was based on what they thought was right. 
So where did they go wrong? If they were tzaddikim and they were trying to do what was right, where did they go wrong? If everything was intended kedasu kedin, and they were people of, of, of great stature, how could they have been so terribly wrong? So Yosef Salant suggests that their mistake was in paskening a shayla of this magnitude on their own, while away in a field somewhere, without consulting Yaakov, without consulting Yitzchak, without consulting Shem Be'ever. When the Medrash says, The Medrash is not, it's not read that way. It's not a statement of fact that the Nisrokim Boroshel Yaakov, it's meant to be read, Was the well empty? Did Yaakov not have any Torah? Why wouldn't they consult with Yaakov? They're faulted for acting without due process. It was more of a spur-of-the-moment reaction than, than, than a, thought, a, a thought-out plan of action which requires being nimlach pekedolim. So Yosef gives two important pieces of advice that are really one unified message, and they're both couched in the phrase, al-tirgezu bederech. First of all, don't paskin halachos when you're on the road. Make sure that there's always due process in your decision-making. You're older, you're more mature now. You should appreciate that as long as there's a Yaakov to consult with, you must consult with him. The taiva for, uh, for a spur-of-the-moment decision-making should be much smaller once a person matures. And second of all, don't take a psiagasa. The Gemara Sanhedrin tells us, How do I know that a person should be patient in, in issuing justice? Apparently, a lack of patience in judgment is equated with taking large steps. So just like Chazal tells us that large steps are not that it takes away one five hundredth of a person's eyesight, so too a person takes large sweeping steps that, circ- that, that circumvent due process, they blind the person's seichel from seeing things clearly. So th- this message on the importance of seeking advice from those who are older and wiser is as pertinent today as it's ever been. Torah Jews in particular have to be especially sensitive to the need to seek counsel and guidance from uh, people who are older than us, from people who have more experience than us, from people maybe who are less nogea bedavar, who can see things more objectively and avoid the pitfall of assuming that we can handle everything, that we can handle whatever complicated situations come our way. If we're blessed with uh, with zikenim, then it's our responsibility to uh, to consult with uh, with those zikenim. Okay, everyone have a great Shabbos. Uh, thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you.